Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Louise Phipps-Simpf. She's a keynote speaker, attorney, mediator, executive coach, and author. Louise, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. I feel welcomed. Yeah, well, I'm glad. I, I, I think you, you have kind of a, a ton of experience. You're, you're, you're doing a bunch of kind of interesting things. But maybe before we kind of get into some of that stuff, let's start out with getting to know you a little bit better and start off with kind of where you grew up. Hmm. Well, I grew up in a couple different places. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, and okay. then my parents moved to New York City, and I was there until my father was actually tragically killed in a commercial airplane crash, and my mom moved us back to the Midwest, where she was from, Springfield, Illinois. So I sort of claim all three places. I think they've really... Um, shaped who I am, sure. uh, but I am probably spent most of my growing up time in the Midwest. No, that's, that's great. So you've, you've kind of been to, um, you know, obviously university and, and whatnot. What got you kind of passionate about like law and, and kind of getting into the whole space? Mm. Well, I became passionate about law, I would say, because my mother and my grandmother would always say, oh, this is Louise. She's going to be the first president, female president of the United States, you know, when I was like five years old. That's awesome, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you know, you hear that um, hundreds and hundreds of times. There's still time. And then, uh, <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, I think what it instilled in me was I needed to learn a lot about systems, and I always just saw that I would be doing things in the world. I never actually had any desire to then truly be president of the United States, but it was more a engendering of what it was that I felt I needed to, to do because there were these expectations, wonderful expectations that my family had of me. And so it then led in some ways naturally to law school when my mom would also tell me about different places in Washington, D.C., like Search for Common Ground being one and the kind of work that they were doing around advocacy. And that that was exciting to me. No, I, I think that that's great. So you got out of university. You've kind of been doing a bunch of kind of stuff from obviously like teaching and kind of working at companies and being a board member and kind of mentoring and, and, and the list kind of goes on and on. But Walk me through that, your kind of career, kind of before you end up kind of doing your own um, own thing. Well, after the University of Virginia, UVA, and law school um, at Washington and Lee, I then went to Washington, D.C. and worked in a really large firm and focused on First Amendment issues. Interesting. And then I worked in Baltimore, Maryland, moved to Baltimore and worked in a large firm in uh, general litigation and found that there were a number of uh, corporate executives and people who are managing large groups of people in medical institutions as well as uh, insurance companies and financial 
companies where they had family problems and family issues. Okay. And those issues really attracted me. So I became one of the two attorneys in my large firm that was willing, um, but actually it was, I, I liked it very much handling uh, things of divorce or, you know, DUIs, um, uh, co- small collection matters that had people, um, their, their finances uh, basically in a knot. And that really led to my then finding that this passion that I had for the law as a litigator, I was trying a lot of cases back then. It was in the 80s that it really was not only an inefficient process, but actually I began to um, turn away from anything that was adversarial, believing that it was um, even wrong um, to carry people's personal lives into the courtroom because the courts were just not equipped whatsoever to give the time that people had an expectation they would have in telling their story and that judges were rendering uh, decisions on small little bits of information based around what was legally relevant when that was uh, really just a part of what was important for clients and individuals. And so it began to really shape a, a very different worldview than the one that I had around helping um, it, you know, around issues of social justice and helping people. And I found that people really were quite um, capable of managing and handling and making some decisions when I could empower them with legal information and actually begin to bring them together uh, what we would call settlement conferences back then, which attorneys rarely had unless they were ordered to have them. Okay, interesting. And so I, I began to initiate them. Um, regularly in my practice because I had, you know, I might even as a young lawyer have been handling, say, 40 cases at a time. And so I began to try and make phone calls and kind of go back and forth and see what might be possible. And it it was really related around settlement. And that then really grew to just simply bringing people together. So I believed that dialogue was the way to go. I had had some formative training when I was in law school, luckily enough, because one of my professors in the school that I chose had one of the, I think, three uh, courses in the country at the time oh, on wow. negotiation and mediation. Yeah. So I got really lucky. And I then left the large firm and struck out on my own to start Baltimore Mediation with a belief that people being brought together in face-to-face dialogue could work out their own issues and they didn't have to be in dispute, but rather they were simply in conflict or, or confused or uncertain and that dialogue and mediation and the kind of mediation that I wanted to offer would be one process that could actually be one of the better processes for them and also save incredible amounts of time and money. No, I I think that's really great. And I, one of the main reasons I, I kind of wanted to have you on the show was obviously you you kind of do mediation and stuff for kind of couples and families. But the big thing that I really wanted to kind of cover with you was kind of how you work with kind of groups and businesses and kind of different organizations. Because obviously kind of in the startup or business game, I, I know like the, the thing startup to me is always kind of weird because it's kind of like a trendy word, but it's like, you know, the, the legal side of this stuff or kind of when companies 
need help, whether they're struggling with something, and having somebody like yourself kind of come in and work through that, you know, so they can maybe save the company or kind of part on, um, you know, at least somewhat decent terms. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to know, and, and I'm sure the listener is too, about kind of how you work with kind of different businesses and organizations to actually kind of help with their kind of disputes and kind of how they've come to resolutions and kind of what your process is around that. Well, it can look uh, very different with regard to how I work with different groups or okay. organizations or startups. Okay. Um, but one of the threads that is completely holds it all together is I would only enter a project with a belief that people had capacity and with the ability to talk to any and everyone and in different configurations okay. so that um, if they were like, this is only going to be, you know, the, just these two people, I will, I'll begin in any way that the company would like for me to, but I will always say to them that in order to do this work there, it needs to, if there are others who become um, important to this conversation, that they be allowed in. Um, that if there are other decision makers that um, are at basically barriers, um, that they be allowed in or actually mandated in. And so it's always around how it is that people, I can help bring people together. And sometimes that is more than 50% of the work because it can be like hurting you know, cats um, sure. for people who you know, don't like each other at all or people who are just too busy, um, they can, it's not about whether they like each other or not, they're just hugely busy executives um, or other professionals. Sure. Or it can be people who um, really have a number of different um, reasons for not coming because there's a fear that things could get worse um, oh, if they came, you know, sure. um, or that they could lose something, um, including uh, face saving. So I, I believe very, very deeply in face saving for people and also in transparency because when you know what you're working with and you have the information as much as you possibly um, can, can derive up front, and a lot of that can be through a mediator who acts as neutral, it's around information imparting and then making sure people have the opportunity to ask questions and then create decisions. So the goal you know, regardless of which group it is, is always to help people change that quality of their interaction that was negative and destructive or keeping them apart to something that is much more positive and constructive as they explore data, sift through information, and make the most informed decisions that they can, which can be around process, which can be around how they work together or how they don't. Um, can be around their departments, you know, merging, interfacing, can be around uh, people actually uh, being laid off or put into different departments, can be around how people are growing and how they're going to expand their product or their field, uh, can be around how people are actually um, moving into just different unknown territories and how they'll use their resources and timelines. So whatever the group is facing, I follow them on their agenda and make sure to provide 
to them helping them to create the safest space that they can to ask a lot of questions and have time to get the information that they need from not just the two or 10 or 50 people who are involved in the process, but others outside that process who can also inform them. And then a lot of the work is also related to whom it is that they need to be interfacing with to carry the message and the decisions that have been made so that the system um, is being held and supported rather than people continuing to make decisions in silos. And so that's really where our where some of our most important work comes in. So it's convening people um, through those barriers, and then once they are convened, um, holding them together really through helping them decide what information they need to impart to whom, when, on timeline, roles. And um, so it looks very different than just a classic, oh, you know, somebody has a dispute over a lot of money, bring in a mediator. Our work is... Um, much more nuanced and okay. related to humans and individuals. And startups, um, they're especially fun because uh, there's so much energy and excitement. And, you know, companies that have been around for a long time, whether they're small or whether they're large, go through um, times when they're shedding and it can sort of feel a little startup-like. You know, how do they uh, pull from already a very tight budget or how it is that they they begin to expand in a way that doesn't, um, you know, cost them immensely where they have to fold their tents. And so so startup is more of an energy and a viewpoint. Uh, But in a very classic startup um, mode where people are coming together and probably out searching for new monies, um, and there are, are you know, venture capitalists who are, who are coming in to prop it up or wanting to have a role. Two pieces that we find that are just so overlooked um, are ways that we hope that we can help people um, to surmount. And the first is asking the kinds of questions that uh, people oftentimes don't dare to ask because they're afraid that the mission could sort of fall apart because the relationships are not well established, um, the unknown and uncertainty is so high that when you can have a neutral facilitating the kinds of questions, you know, like what happens if, um, or if this doesn't work, then what, or, you know, how good are you for, you know, this money or for how long, or are there circumstances or conditions under which you would no longer be lending money or, um, you know, have you ever done a takeover before or, or have have you ever been part of the kinds of things that you just can't get through even a very good due diligence? Sure. So that's a that's a pretty exciting process that we can offer people on the front end. Sure. I, and this is kind of something that I've kind of been curious about um, since we kind of last chatted. How do you find or deal with the kind of different generations because I'm I'm a millennial and I work kind of targeted as the lazy generation, which is fine, whatever. I don't really care. And to be honest, it, it, it you actually don't, works. You don't really care that as well, a millennial be, that you're labeled as lazy? I'll, I'll tell you why. Because then there's no bar for me. So if if I – it basically, it, it gives me less competition, right? And I think 
it, it's more of a driving <laughs> factor to say like, don't network online. It's great because I do that all the time. It's like it, it the people that actually are actually kind of motivated to do better, if they're people in their age range aren't willing to do that, I'm at an advantage. So I always joke like, don't link or don't network on LinkedIn or other kind of networking event things because it's great for me, right? And and by me saying that, I hope it motivates people to prove me wrong, right? And I'm that type of person where I need that kind of motivation, right? And I think there's lazy people and there's motivated people in every generation and there always will be, right? And they get it. So to me, it's funny, right? But back to my kind of original question is, do you find a lot of the struggles that you guys deal with in kind of the business space, whether it's a startup or a big kind of large organization, do you find that just maybe it's a generational gap thing that they just can't really relate to each other? Because as I'm 34 now and I'm starting to get older, obviously, and, you know, I start thinking kind of in some respects, like how my dad used to say, like, I don't understand the music of today or like some sort of big trends. Like, I just don't get it. Right. Like the finger spinner thing. I was like, I, I don't get it. But I remember being younger and there was things that we needed to have th that our parents didn't get. Right. So do you find just in a lot of it is just like a generational thing or or is that kind of too broad of a thing? Oh, I don't think it's too broad at all. In fact, it's very broad, um, probably never too broad, but I think generational differences um, are very real and probably always will be, just even with the examples that you just gave. You know, sure. you remember your parents would say the same thing or uh, possibly their grandparents um, sure. and, now, and now you. We just happen to have a lot of focus on, you know, millennials and Prior to that, there was a huge focus on baby boomers and sure. um, both of those, you know, cultural um, labeling can can still be present, uh, some of which might be accurate, um, a lot of which might not be. And so what we find is whatever people present with, like if they say, look, we're millennials, you know, or, or look, we're, we're older and we, we don't get you. We just follow that, you know, so, okay, so if you're millennials, what's important for you, you know, around that, um, are there aspects of the label that are limiting? Are there aspects of the label that are empowering? Um, you know, so that, that's the kind of dialogue that we would help people to have and something in our work that's because it's not focused on getting people ever to agree um, okay, it's, it's much more authentic. Yeah, no, no. Agreement is just a byproduct of our work. And it's, it's highly likely, but not because we have any stake in, in wanting to get people to do anything around agreement. So when you don't resist, which I think in some ways, Kevin, for you was a bit of the story you were even sharing about, hey, you know, I'm millennial, I'm lazy, and it's actually been a good thing because you know, with the motivation factor, you, it might just be indicative for you or for some, your personality or somebody like you, sure. but from the perspective of a relational professional, a relational mediator, when there is someone in a conversation who is staying grounded, and that's something that we write about a lot, this idea of, you know, maybe and maybe not. Okay. And staying very open and curious 
to be able to ask more, it really provides a much more expanded version of a person or of a group of people, especially when the label could have been so broad that it actually is limiting. Okay, interesting. And that's very empowering. And sure. you don't and so for us to not resist or try to get people to uh, agree or to see it the other person's way, simply have it modeled by uh, by the mediator, by a relational mediator who says it, it, yes, of course and that's how it is for you. And it's important. And it, what you know, what about that do you think, you know, matters right now or how do you wish for people to see you? Or how do you wish for people to understand further if they if they so choose? So without resisting, people then are much more willing to be able to see the other person's point of view, and they don't have to expend a lot of energies trying to then defend or fight for their place at the table because there has been somebody there who's made it okay for them to hold whatever viewpoint they wish to hold or to see themselves in whatever way they so choose and offers the opportunity for the other. And that's, that's very, very powerful. And in particular, when we do hear a a lot of, of labels um, that can really be, be quite limiting, but staying grounded and really sort of facing the reality of the generational uh, conflicts is really important. You know, something that comes to my mind too, that I don't um, see there being much focus on, but where there is such opportunity is the around the generation called millennial and the generation called baby boomers. If it is true, um, and I do say if, um, sure. but of a number of people, let's say um, older uh, Caucasian men being, being laid off to make room for um, you know, 30-year-old somethings in the sales world and the tech world and so forth. So, and instead of fighting about, you know, that's, you know, it's uh, discriminatory, um, it's wrong, or what do you expect and we have to keep up, it's the only way to, you know, to help the bottom line. All those things can be true, but without fighting about them, what if the conversation was just face reality? Okay, so there are all these people who are, Uh, being uh, pushed out of the workplace or asked to leave the workplace or snuffed out or uh, spun out or stamped on. And there are all these other people who are coming in to take their place. What would it look like for those people who were being, being forced out? You know, where will they go? What do, what might the next generation have to offer in terms of ideas around that? Um, I mean, that, those would be really cool conversations to have. Sure. That's as opposed to, you know, that it's just, it's just wrong and here comes another generation because it's certainly not the first time where the older generation gets replaced. It's just happening at an earlier age because through technology, sure. we're, you know, the changes are so rapid. Do you also think, though, too, and I, I don't, well, I don't really, like, obviously there's good and bad that happens on the internet, but... I don't mean this in a negative point. Like I think it gets publicized more now just because we have access to information globally, right? So you hear about it more and maybe it's always been happening, you know, like it's been happening forever, but you keep hearing about it just because of, you know, like we have access to information and kind of the global 
you know, space and kind of business arena and you're always like okay well this company's doing this and this company's doing this and you're like you keep hearing about the same things good and bad you know kind of globally so maybe it seems like a bigger problem now than it was maybe like a few decades ago or do you think it's really to your point like just it's becoming a lot worse because of technology well i don't know um that is becoming worse, okay. if you will, because of okay. technology. But I do believe that technology is heightening and quickening okay. um, communication in, in ways that, um, in some ways, where the human psyche and brain actually can't keep up with it as, as quickly. Um, the, the aspect of do I think it's always been that way or is it uh, because of, you know, communi- communication is so great we're just hearing about it more? I mean, perhaps, but I, you know, in my field around communication and conflict, I, w- one view that I, that I hold is that communication actually shapes the experience. Um, okay, an experience shapes the communication. So some things that may have been happening around the world all along that are um, exposed, if you will, or um, even reported on in, in a positive kind of way, we don't see those as much as we see things that are exposed. Because they are exposed, they seem to shape other mindset and behavior that might actually be creating than instances and behavior that would not have otherwise have been created, but for the quick communication. And I, and I think that that is um, a really interesting piece also around the brain um, and neuroscience as well. Sure. And, And I think too, like just understanding where the other person's coming from, especially, and again, I've kind of seen this happen where you have somebody that's maybe like say in their 20s or in their 30s trying to pitch um, or get investment from somebody that's maybe in their 50s or 60s, right? And just trying to understand that kind of type of person because, and if you can kind of tailor your pitch or whatnot to kind of that personality type is probably going to get you along like a lot better and maybe getting investment where if you come in a little bit more with kind of a different approach or, or maybe even like I know, and I shouldn't say necessarily like appearance and certain things kind of play into different generations. I, I know like obviously more and more companies are kind of embracing kind of like do whatever you kind of want. And, but it used to be, and certain companies are still a lot stricter with kind of dress code and stuff like that. But if you kind of come into a pitch meeting, at least in my experience with, you know, kind of like ripped up jeans and maybe like a t-shirt, or if you came in with like a suit or, or kind of like a business casual thing, you're going to be, obviously the first impression is going to be a lot different, right? So I guess the point I'm trying to get at is, is going in and kind of understanding the person that you're at least trying to, you know, either get money from or resolve the conflict for, if you at least understand their side or there may be triggers that could kind of set them off a little bit, kind of whether it's appearance or kind of personality or or kind of things like that. Do you find some of that stuff plays into 
part of that or or no because I, for, like even in my own experience like my grandpa for example was very much on like used to even give us kind of a hard time if we had like ripped jeans for example right and so you know like if you didn't want to get a hard time from grandpa at dinner just put on jeans that didn't have a hole in them even if it was like trendy at the time do, do you know what i'm trying to get at there sure i said th- well i think so um it sounds as though you're asking uh, my thoughts on whether the way someone presents themselves from an appearance perspective, if that matters or has an impact on a uh, startup meeting um, or a conflict. Yeah. And is that yeah. really kind yeah, of the question? Yeah, well, a kind of appearance and an almost like attitude towards the other person. Because like going back to the, my grandpa example, like I could care less if he really thinks that I'm wearing like holy jeans or not, but like sometimes it's just not worth the, the like getting having that kind of conversation when if I can do something small on my end to maybe like help the situation along or not even bring something into a conversation. Do you do you know what I mean? What I'm trying to get at there? Well, we certainly have known for for many many years in their organizations that focus on this specifically, that if you are going into um, a difficult meeting where there's a different cultural set, whether it's, um, you know, with others who are American or non-American or European or Asian or you're, you know, you're over in the other parts of the world. And we certainly know generationally from, you know, kids and what's expected in certain restaurants, even here, you know, at home or other, uh, you know, the opera uh, versus fast yeah, okay, food and sure. um, how things have changed. I mean, there are those kinds of expectations um, abound uh, throughout the, the world. And there certainly are groups that have focused on how it is that one could prepare a little bit more fully to understand a culture that you are going into. Um, certainly the role of women and, and dress sure. or um, sh- shoes or um, the level voice decibel or whether you bring gifts uh, or not and how you shake hands or not and bow. And I mean, so much um, has been studied and disseminated for those who are interested. And I have certainly benefited from their work on preparing when, when meeting with difficult circumstances and or people whom you definitely wish to show respect to in order um, for a mediator, of course, to do her work. But I I do think all that said that regardless, uh, believe it or not, of how one presents, well, let me, let me say for, you probably might know what I I think, but but let me, let me just give a nod to our amazing brains. Mm -hmm. You know, we're blessed with um, brains that are just so quick. That's where judgment comes in because the brain just scans for what's familiar, which allows us to maneuver very quickly in the world and go through all kinds of information and, you know, walk and drive and speak and and multitask because our brain is used to, uh, has, has grooved, you know, what it is that we've done before. And so when one comes to a meeting that is either fraught with conflict or is going to be difficult and a peer shows up um, in a dress, you have referred to your grandfather and your holy genes a number of times, in a way that the brain flashes a quick judgment 
um, that actual, that ability, and certainly this has been studied and written about by others as well, again, from whom I have benefited, but that quick judgment um, has on the positive side that same quick judgment that allows you to do so many things. Interesting. So, um, so I think it's really just to be understood and appreciated, if you will. That said, regardless of how someone shows up, attitude um, will always, uh, you know, the human heart um, beats strongly and yearns for understanding. And when it, regardless of how one is dressed um, and regardless of gender and regardless of age and regardless of color of skin, when one acts in a way that is truly engaged and we write a lot about a quality of engagement and a quality of being centered, regardless of how one is dressed and regardless of that quick impression, therein will a much deeper conversation begin because of the skill set of relational engagement. And, and so that's actually quite exciting about our work that, um, you know, we can, we can speak a lot about those other things, which I do find valuable, but what pierces all of that is a quality of human interaction. And that's really what is, uh, where we're really, really interested in improving the quality of human interaction. And, you know, of course, if the way one dresses is, you know, step one where it can show respect at the get go, then do it. Sure. But there's something that's more profound uh, than just how one is appearing in garb um, and choice of dress. Sure. And I guess understanding just where the other person's coming from and why they choose that is interesting in itself, right? Yes, absolutely. And um, that ability to listen sure. uh, fully for why, why someone chose that without being um, negatively judgmental. Sure. Um, even if you disagree very strongly, sure. it's very powerful to be able to listen to someone else uh, fully um, because they will much more likely be able to listen to you. Sure. No, that's that's fair. The, the other thing then I'm curious then is how do you guys work with people that are maybe don't want change even though they maybe deep down know that they need it? Because you know, to either grow the business or kind of go in a new direction or, or how do you guys kind of handle that? Because that's got to be really tricky if you have like a few people that or one person on the team that's maybe like very senior or, or the CEO or something that's like, nope, this is how we've always done it. We're not changing. But like they need to for whatever reason because their business might die. So... That issue is one that comes up when we're working with really any kind of a group. We ask, they, they'll come to us because they're asking us to come in to help them with some kind of change, you know, whether it's integration or whether it's, you know, moving departments or how it is that the executive team, you know, will make some different decisions because the CEO wants them to understand X, Y, and Z. One of the first pieces that we will do with any engagement is to say our our, our job actually is not to get people to change. Okay. It's similar to not getting them to agree. Okay. Interesting. Our job will help you 
if you're the ones who are interested in being change agents, our job will be to help you be the most effective change agents you can be in your organization while inviting the others along. And we'll coach and give process and good forum for that and lots of dialogue. But we will not come in with our, you know, here in comes Baltimore Mediation to change the culture or here in comes Baltimore Mediation to change the executive team or in comes Baltimore Mediation to change the family business. Um, it's rather in comes Baltimore Mediation to facilitate the dialogue around change um, and whether it will happen or not. And if so, what it will look like and under what circumstances and timeline and resources and um, give and take and all those kinds of pieces. Sure. And then I guess if people kind of move on because they don't agree that it is what it is, like that's got to happen, right? Well, people actually, it's not that they, they move on. It's like we tried. Okay. It's more that they have to, our most effective work when it comes to large groups of people, really large organizations, is in laying the foundation with the leadership I see. How willing are they to stick with the process when they're when things are not going to move potentially as quickly as they wanted, or they're going to get messier, um, or they're going to be called upon? There are going to be points of view that will be given voice um, that and and credence for them to consider. Um, they don't have to agree and they don't have to do anything about it. But how willing are they to engage in a process like that? Because truly. It's, it's the only kind of process that will then have as an outcome agreement or change. You see, it's kind of a counter-cultural yeah. approach. That's interesting. Yeah, And okay. some people have said to us, like, oh, that's so counterintuitive. And oh, I say, oh, it's not counterintuitive at all. It's, it's counter to the ego. It's counter-egoic. It's highly intuitive. Yeah, no, Highly that's fair. Intuitive. But then, how do you, how do you guys kind of work at removing the ego from these conversations, right? Because it has to be, to some people, like ego can be everything or nothing or or everywhere or somewhere in between, right? Just based on personality types. Well, removing ego again would not be one of our goals. Okay. Because, you know, ego is um, necessary, right? Power is necessary. Okay, Everybody sure. has an ego. Everybody has power. Um, they might not, you know, be aware or they might not be using it in a, in a way that other people like. Um, so, again, it's allowing people to come together to speak about if there's too much ego, and that's a topic, that's a topic we facilitate. Um, okay. If it's too little and they need to have more investments, that's a topic we would facilitate. If it's too posturing and too blustery, uh, that's a topic that gets facilitated. And one might say that's not on the agenda, you know, the, the ego or his or her huge ego. But indeed, it's exactly what is a barrier that others speak about or acknowledge or reference. And so a really good relational mediator hears those pieces and lifts them up to ask if there are any other requests uh, to be made of the other person or any other understanding um, as they're still talking about what might be something very concrete around, you know, the, the finances or a decision that would be made for an organization. You see, 
So yeah, see, for okay. a mediator, for us, it's all all those um, aspects are equally on the agenda, if you will. Got you. Yeah, that's that's actually quite interesting because so many people talk about removing things that you you can't remove from human beings, right? Because like you just can't like it's just there, right? But it but to your point, like a, being able to kind of control or add some basically, right? Like is interesting. Well, we find, and you know, when we, when we wrote being relational, that what people have is themselves, right? And and human nature and and human beings. And when you have the the beauty of, and and the incredible benefit of working with a third party who's, who's truly neutral, but very, very proactive about improving the quality of interaction it's not what the mediator thinks is quality interaction. It's what the participants think. Sure. So when they say, you know, you're just, you know, you're, you're a bonehead and, and you know, you're, or you're, you know, you're, you're a jerk or the, you know, your, your department are huge bullies. Um, we just follow that through and the quality of engagement, allowing them not to, you know, to stay in that conversation and being centered to not not judge them, but to be very aware of our own bodily responses to stay curious. Like so, so what does that mean, and what is it that you all need to say about that? That quality is something that is very difficult to do unassisted. Sure. But we wrote about it to show people how they can with practice. And of course, you know, we have many trainings that teach professionals and all kinds of people a relational skill set. And it's when you approach something purposefully, relationally, to not only maximize your own, your own self-interest, which would be a, a transactional approach, but rather to never lose yourself, but to be open enough to the other's point of view, whether you agree with it or whether you don't, it will simply expand what the options and the possibilities are for both. And it's in that interaction that the experience, the human experience itself can change. And so someone who had a quote unquote lot of ego, whatever that means, sure. assuming that it was you know, raised by the other person as a barrier, they have a chance to soften that, to have a moment of self-awareness, um, maybe to get under it and, and explain what all that, you know, quote unquote ego was about uh, or why it's there or what it needed to protect, um, what was something that was much more fragile underneath. Um, and that is the beauty we, we find and we write about and, and people, you know, thousands of people report. That's the beauty of taking a relational approach. It, and, and people do emerge um, better for it. Interesting. Whether they decide that you know they have accomplished all of their goals, or they have truly changed you know the culture that they wanted to, or they have you know made it through everything and all the decisions that they hoped they would make, or not, they have a different experience with each other. And you know, per your question earlier, regardless of how they showed up dressed, um, you know, people shift sure. and can literally change themselves, not because the mediator forces them to change or expects them to, but rather provides the hospitality and the space where change can take place, if so chosen. 
No, I, I that's great. I, I love that. And we're I think that's the perfect kind of way to kind of close out the show. We're running out of time. So let's maybe mention where people can get more information about yourself. And you do kind of a, a bunch of events and kind of trainings throughout kind of North America. And obviously, like people can probably have you guys come in. Um, so do you maybe want to mention where people can get more information and find out about your kind of upcoming events and training? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, you can find us at, these are three websites, baltimoremediation.com. Okay. Um, you can also get more information at that site on, on trainings. You can find out about a relational approach at www.beingrelational.com. You can also get involved. Uh, we have a nonprofit called Orens. And that website is joinorans.org. And you can also learn about and find out about different places where I will be keynoting uh, by looking, going to the website. You can call the office. Um, we're in a number of places uh, around the country and, um, and around the world. Make a, make a trip to The Hague this fall with a group that uh, a number of mediators and I were part of the founding of as we do some peace summit work in Amsterdam. Perfect. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. I appreciate it and hope that your readers will read Being Relational. It can <laughs> uh, really be a little bit of a life-changing book. It's, uh, it's small and uh, calls upon a lot of uh, the wisdom of others. And I so appreciate this time, Kevin. It's been, been very lovely. Perfect. Thanks very much, and we'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep playing for the future.